guys came to play. I love that. My name is Jason Windsor. I'm one of the student pastors here at the Mount. Thank you. I want to let you know that my, uh, my dear life friend, John, back there started that clap. He did the slow clap, and just like in the movies, everybody got on board. There's power in the slow clap, but I bet you my mom was clapping for me as well online. Thank you, mom. Uh, As I said, my name is Jason Windsor. I'm very happy to be here with you guys this morning. We are going to be primarily coming out of Luke chapter 4 and Jonah 4. So if you are one that follows along, I would encourage you to kind of set up because as is kind of my style, which I have honed being with students, we will move quickly because I have learned that if you move slowly with students, they get off the bus. So we don't want that to happen. So we are going to blaze through Luke 4 and Jonah 4, but... Before we do that, I'm going to start in a little bit of an odd place. I'm going to start with the Little League World Series. Uh, There you go. One baseball fan in the house, which is about how baseball works. So we're sitting there uh, at a pizza joint, and I've got a couple of my sons and a couple of friends with us, and we've ordered our pizza. They have the Little League World Series on, and we're kind of half watching, you know, half having conversation. And we look up to check on the score, and we see that a young man is laying in the batter's box. So, of course, our attention is immediately engaged. We want to see what has happened to this young man. And they show the replay, and this is what has happened to this young batter. Oh, look out. That's awesome. So we had cut some time there because he was on the ground for a while. You could hear that click when it hits him, and it sound, it looks like in the regular shot that he was clocked in the face. Uh, thankfully, it hit the very bottom of that ear flap, and after a few minutes, he got up and proceeded to first base. So we all kind of breathed, everybody kind of clapped, and we started going back to eating our pizza. But then my friend Twerger kind of hits me on the shoulder, and he says, Jay, look up at the screen. You're going to want to see this. This is really cool because as a pitcher, Bubs looks shaken up right now because of what he did. And look at Zay Jarvis. This is such great sportsmanship. He wants him to know that it's okay. What a stud right there, Zay Jarvis. So, of course, I did want to see that because that's beautiful. That's inspiring. Uh, People crying in the stands. That made national news. Not because the kid got hit and got up, which is great. That's fantastic. That made national news because that kid took a trip from first base to the mound. But what I want to draw out in that is he was the first one to take a trip to the mound. There's a 12-year-old boy with his hand on his head, distraught, just disheveled at what he has done. And he hadn't even done it on purpose. But he knows how hard those boys work to get there. And he thought for a minute he might have ended that young batter's World Series. He didn't mean to. Pitches get away from people. It happens all the time. But he is buried under the weight of his guilt and utterly alone in a sea of thousands of people. Until the guy that he hit walks from first base to the mound. And then what happens? 
everybody snaps out of it and goes, oh yeah, there's a wounded 12-year-old boy right in the middle of us. And then you see players, coaches, you see everybody swarms the mound. And don't think for a second that I'm bagging or criticizing the players and the coaches. We are the players and the coaches. Because sometimes you see something that hits the reset button on your brain and you don't know how to react. Because what you saw was unexpected, what you saw was different, what you saw was new, and it takes your brain a minute to catch up to what you just observed. And sometimes it takes someone showing you the simple, profound thing to snap you back into reality to go, oh yeah, that's what I should have been doing all along. This is our lives when we replay conversations, when we have actions, when we've had some time to reflect we go, oh, you know what I should have done there? You know what I should have said there? Oh, I know I missed my opportunity. But sometimes someone steps out of the crowd, catches up to it a little bit faster than we do, and shows us what we knew we should have been doing all along. And that's inspiring. That changes lives. That provides a framework so that our eyes are open to new opportunities. And that young man on first base did that for everybody that saw that clip, showed us how to act in similar actions. And this is kind of the mood of first century Palestine as Jesus is just announcing who he is. There's an air of anticipation in the air because this guy is doing things that nobody had ever seen before and he's saying things that nobody had ever heard before and he's basically pressing the reset button on an entire country going, you think one way, you act one way and I am showing you a new way. And lots of people really liked it. Lots of people really thought this was a big deal and there was rumors kind of swirling about, is he the one that we have been waiting for? Because since their inception, since the very beginning, the Israelites have been promised a deliverer. And so they've been reading about him in the Old Testament, which was not the Old Testament yet, it was just the Bible. But they've been reading about him and they've been watching for him and maybe their hope had been kind of diminishing as thousands of years had passed without a trace of this guy. Many people had claimed to be the guy. But as yet, no one had been authenticated by God. And here you've got a guy that has stepped on the scene and is transforming everything. And he was very well liked. So we pick up in Luke 4, starting at 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. People loved the things that Jesus was saying. They loved the things that he was doing, the newness that was in the air, the hope that things might be about to change and might be about to get better for us. They're asking the question, could he be the one? He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue as was his custom to read. This would have been very normal. He's a rabbi, which means he gets to take his turn in the synagogue teaching. It wasn't kind of like what we're doing right now, where we have one guy get on stage and speak to everybody. There was many opportunities for people to teach. And as a rabbi, he would have been accepted. But as a member of his community, he would have actually been expected to read from these passages and expected to contribute into what was going on. So all of this was very normal and would not have been found odd in any way, but... What he read on this day was very odd. 
He read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah that was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. For our purposes, this is Isaiah 61, the first three verses. But for first century Judaism, this was a messianic passage. This was one of those passages where the prophet said, hey, the deliverer is coming, and here's what you need to look out for. Everybody in the synagogue would have been very familiar with this passage because it's the standard by which we would have measured any contender that came for and said, I am God's messenger. I am the deliverer. And so when Jesus read this, this is nothing new. He did not read them anything that wasn't already inside their heads. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened upon him. Everyone looking at him going, what's he about to do now? He just read us a messianic passage. What's the point? Where's he headed? Could he be about to? And oh yes, he is. He cuts through the silence, leaving no doubt, saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. He says the prophet was writing about now. The prophet was writing about me. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. He began to speak and everybody acknowledged he was speaking with wisdom, that he was delivering something special, that he was something special. They're all amazed with the grace that he conducts himself and with the power that he speaks things and with the wisdom of the words that are coming out of his mouth. But there's a big thing that they cannot get past. They ask, isn't this Joseph's son? They say, hey, don't we know your dad? Isn't your dad the carpenter? Didn't, weren't you running around here at six years old? Like, don't we know you? How can you claim to be the Messiah when we have met your mother and your father? I think it's a fair question. But Jesus is ready for this. He knows that they were going to doubt him. And this is what he says. Surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. He says, surely you're about to say, you're a doctor, go ahead and heal yourself from sickness. Prove to us you're a doctor by healing yourself. He basically says, dance for us. We don't believe you. Put on a show and maybe we'll believe you. And you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Put on these works that we've heard. We've heard that you've been doing this all around, but we need you to show us that you are who you say you are. Jesus responds, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, yet when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. He says, no matter what I do, you will not believe in me. No matter what show I put on, you will find a reason to doubt me. I am the Messiah. I have told you I'm a Messiah. You have read all the messianic prophecies. 
but you are still going to reject me. And then he goes all the way in. Just like your ancestors rejected all of the ones that told you about me. Just like for its history, the Jews have hated the wisdom of God, you will hate me in the same way. And just like in the olden days, when widows were suffering in Israel, God sent a prophet to a foreigner and helped her. And when people were dying of skin disease in Israel, God sent a prophet to a foreigner and helped him. You will reject me and God will embrace the foreigner. And they were livid. Equating rejecting him as the Messiah with their ancestors rejecting the prophets was unheard of. But to tell you the truth, it was just the icing on the cake. When he read that scroll, he had already put every religious leader in that temple on full tilt. Because for all their flaws and for all their misconceptions of God and for all the ways that they loved oppressing the poor, those men knew their scripture. They knew it backwards, they knew it forwards, they knew it in, they knew it out, and they would have known what he didn't read. Because one of the ways they would study scripture is what's called a remez. Remez uh, means hint. The teacher or rabbi would give you a passage of scripture. And then you would be called on to say what came before and what came after. So he would say something like, in all your ways submit to him and he will direct your paths. And then you would have to say before it, trust in the Lord in all you do. And then after it, you would say, have your eyes fear the Lord. And you would know what came before and after because that's how you proved you knew scripture because you could put it in context. You could tell the whole story and this was how you knew your Bible. Very different from how we study our Bibles today. But in this time, that would have been very commonplace, especially for the religious leaders. So I wanna read you that passage from Isaiah again and what the religious leaders would have heard when he read it. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. He basically put them all on notice. The time for glorifying yourself is over. You have given these people a false conception of me. You have told them to clean up before they come to the temple. You won't even sit down and have a meal with these people because you think they are filthy. You have taught them all the wrong things about me and you have used my name to carve out wealth and influence and power. And I am here to announce that ends today because I am going to show these people how much God loves them. I am going to bridge the great distance that you have pretended exists in an effort to make your name great. And by the time I am done, it is God's name that will be great. And that was too much, too much for them to handle. All of the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. He's made them so angry that they are ready to kill him 
but his time has not yet come. So through some miracle, he walks right through them and the good news goes right with him. Because what was bad news to them, which was really good news to them, but they perceived it as bad news, was great news to everyone else. Because watch what he does at the end of four and, and all through five. He said that he was gonna proclaim freedom and he said the blind will see and he said the sick will be healed. And if you read it tonight, that's exactly what happened. He walked right through that crowd of people to the next town and he started saying, hey, fevers, you're gone. He started saying leprosy, you're gone. He started healing. It says the power of the Lord for healing was upon him. And he was healing so many people that people in the towns he went to literally begged him to stay. Much different than his hometown. They said, please don't leave us. And he said, I have to. The good news has to go to every town, not just this one. In one particular instance in Luke 5, some friends bring a paralyzed man. And they ask him, heal this man, Jesus. And Jesus says something very curious. He says, don't worry, your sins are forgiven. Again, religious leaders can't, they cannot fathom. There's no category for someone saying this because only God can forgive sins. They say, why does this man say he can forgive sins when only God can forgive sins? And he answers the question in their heart saying, which is easier for me to say? Forgive sins or get up and walk. But I say forgive sins so that you will see what is standing right in front of your face. I say forgive sins. Take your mat, get up and walk. And the man takes his mat, get up and walk, and walks right out of the house. But this all comes to a head at the end of Luke 5, where Jesus calls one of his disciples, Levi. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting in his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. See the difference in receptions here. Levi is a wealthy man with not what was considered a very prestigious job, but with a job he didn't have to worry about money. He leaves everything. He sees what's right in front of him. He throws a banquet because he sees what is right in front of him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who do not see what is right in front of them, who belong to their sect, complain to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Why does your Messiah not behave like a Messiah? Why is he doing this? We are thoroughly confused. He heals sick. He preaches wisdom from scriptures, but he does not do the things that he ought to do. Put him back in his place. Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. He invites the religious elite to see what is in front of them. I read you the scroll, the scroll you already know. You know the signs to look for. You know I didn't come to hang out with people who think they're better than everyone else. Read the scroll. I came out to free captives. I came out so that blind people can see. I came out so that lame people can walk. I came out for the people that are sick so that they would have an accurate concept of God and not feel separated by the nonsense that you've been feeding them. This is an invitation 
to them to see what is right in front of their eyes. And it's the same tension that we find in Jonah chapter 4. God saying, Jonah, see what is right in front of your eyes. The story of Jonah starts with an invitation. He says to Jonah, be a part of redeeming an entire city, Jonah. Go to Nineveh and tell them that if they don't turn from their ways, that I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Go be a part of their redemptive history. And Jonah gets on a boat going the exact opposite direction. And right here, we like to read it and we like to put it in our little kids' devos. Look at Jonah running from God. Jonah was not running from God. Jonah was running from Nineveh. Because he didn't want to be a part of the Ninevites' redemptive story. He didn't think they deserved it. And every good Jewish person reading the story of Jonah or hearing the story of Jonah would have sided with Jonah. They would have been cheering. Yes, don't take that good news to the oppressive Syrians. Do not give them a chance. What they have done is too bad. It's too horrible. Don't you remember what they did to our ancestors? This is an enemy of our people. Do not dare, Jonah, take the goodness of God to the people of Nineveh. Run. And they would have gone, yes. But God sends a storm. And through the storm, the sailors throw Jonah into the ocean. God saves Jonah from the ocean by a fish and gives Jonah a few days to reconsider the request. At God's command, the fish spits Jonah out on, on dry land. And the request comes again. Jonah, take the message that if the Ninevites do not turn from their ways and acknowledge the one true God, that they are going to face my judgment. This time, like most of us, after we bang our head against the wall, we go do what God asks. Sometimes, like Jonah, half-heartedly. So Jonah walks in. He preaches what God has told him to preach. And lo and behold, miracle of miracles, the Ninevites agree. They say, absolutely. We fear the one true God. We would prefer not to be wiped off the face of the earth. So we are going to repent. Instead of standing against God, instead of standing against the one who never loses, we are going to agree with him. And we are going to repent from our ways. We are going to acknowledge that Jonah's God is the true God. And we are going to beg God not to bring his judgment on us. And God hears them and says, yes, I accept your repentance. I will no longer judge you. I will accept you. What was good news to God and good news to the Ninevites was not good news to Jonah. We pick up in Jonah 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became, became angry. He did not like God's grace to the Ninevites. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord? When I was at home, this is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life. It is better for me to die than live. I knew that you would do this because I know you. I know that you love people. I know that you are good. I know that you are compassionate. And now you have used me to save an evil people. How do I go back to Jerusalem now? How do I face the people that agree with me 
Let's say you had no business doing anything but wiping those people off the face of the earth. You have used me to save evil people, and I am mad. So God does what most good fathers do at this point. He asks a question, hoping that it will lead to introspection. God delivers a very powerful question saying, is it right for you to be angry? That's loaded. Saying, hey, man that I created. Hey, man that just spent three days in the belly of a fish that I prepared, walking on an earth that I created, to people that I created, under the sun that I created, and the night that I created. Is it right for you to be angry? Is it? He invites Jonah to see what is right in front of him. He invites Jonah to put himself in the proper place in creation and in turn put God in the proper place in creation as well. But sometimes questions aren't enough. So in his infinite wisdom, God gives Jonah an object lesson. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. I think Jonah's still holding out hope for fire and brimstone. I think he's still up there going, all right, so these Ninevites repented today, but tomorrow's coming real fast. And then the day after that, and I bet you Jonah's willing to wait at least a week or two weeks to see if they go back to their old ways and then remind them, God, you see what's happening, right? Right there, they're back. Go, do your thing. I think he's gonna play the role of tattletale. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. Jonah's feeling a little bit better. Maybe he's had a little bit of food. Maybe he took a nap. He's got some shade. Maybe he's convinced himself the Ninevites won't follow through and he's gonna to get to see some destruction. But whatever it is, he's calmed down. He's good Jonah now. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God providing a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. Back to being hot, back to being miserable, back to wishing he was dead. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? You didn't create it. You didn't grow it. You had it for fewer than 24 hours. Is it right for you to be so upset that a piece of agriculture that you had nothing to do with the cultivation of has withered and died? And here's Jonah's response. It is, he said, and I am so angry that I wish I was dead. So he answers God's invitation with yes, I am right on this one, God. That plant was very important to me and you should not have killed it and I am back to wishing that I was dead. Here's how God answers. 
But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. It had a lifespan of 24 hours. How much could you really have enjoyed it when probably 10 of those hours were in darkness, Jonah? You're literally upset over about 14 hours of plant life. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and so many animals? God clearly states, Jonah, what's more important here? The plant that you enjoyed for 14 hours or the entire city, the hundreds of thousands of people that you now call brothers because they also acknowledge the one true God. What should we have more concern over? Shade or people? He invites Jonah to see what is right in front of him. He invites Jonah to reorganize his priorities and see what God sees. The people are more important than the plant. He offered the same invitation to the Pharisees some thousands of years later, saying, see what's right in front of you. The people are more important than your wealth and your power and your misconceptions of who you think I am. And the invitation to Jonah and the invitation to the Pharisees is the same invitation that you and I have. He says, see what is right in front of you. Is it right for you to be angry that you caught every red light on the way to work when you are literally going to rub elbows with a hundred of people that if they don't know me, they will die forever separated from me? Is it right for you to be angry that your tire is flat when the next gas station that you will walk in will have 50 people that if they die ever without ever knowing who I am, without ever agreeing that Jesus is who he says he is, they will be separated from me forever. Jesus' invitation to us is to shun our measly lives of convenience, to take inventory on what makes us angry because what makes you angry is what you value. Is it right for you to be angry at these minor inconveniences on this minimal journey that we call life, when there are people around you that need to come into contact with the one living God? Is it right for you to hold tightly to your life of convenience? Or is it right for you to accept God's invitation to a life of purpose? This is the invitation daily. See what is right in front of you. For those of us that agree who he says he is, I would say it's more than an invitation. It's a calling. I would say this isn't as significant as am I going to the birthday party or not. This is am I going to live a life that means something or not. This is a significant invitation that has only one correct answer. And it's an answer that's delivered through the Holy Spirit that God has put in us. See what is right in front of you. When Isaiah talks about those who are blind, he's talking about you and me. 
He's talking about all of us, except the boy that took the walk from first base to the pitcher's mouth. He's talking about those of us that are more concerned with our daily checklist than the people that our daily checklist will bring us in contact with. This is who we are. We are the called. We are the ones who believe that he is who he says he is. So we are the ones that take the good news through the power of the Holy Spirit until he comes back. We are his plan A and there is no plan B. So we need to lay down our nonsense, pick up his purpose, open our eyes and see what is right in front of us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a good God. We ask that as a people that is powered by your spirit, that you remove the blindness from our eyes, that you remove the deafness from our ears and you give us a soft heart, a heart that isn't so worried about being on time or in the right place, but a heart that is worried about your time and your place. Eyes open, ears open, looking for the opportunities to serve the people that you have put in front of us so that more people can be added to the kingdom of worshipers that will go throughout eternity. We ask for nothing less than radical life change. As we take these moments of faithfulness that you plant in us, we take these moments of faithfulness where we truly see what you have for us and you grow those, that seed, into fruit that will just continue to bear and continue to grow and continue to be harvested. Let us be about the same things that you are, your glory and your people, and let us have just a restlessness until we're on the same page as you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We love you, God. Amen.